turn to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3. We're working through 1 Timothy on uh, Wednesdays. We're in the very last chapter of the book of Revelation on Sundays. And Timothy, uh, we're actually <laughs> doing all right. We're in chapter 3. We could have, uh, we're, we're, we got a decent pace going. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, I mentioned to you, this will still relate to you. Uh, was, I, was I spot on when I mentioned that even though I'd be talking about parenting and the fear of the Lord, that that message would still relate to everybody? Because we all need to fear the Lord, amen? amen? Well, this message, even though it's talking about the qualifications of an elder, it relates to all of us as far as application goes, because everything, all 15 things that Paul mentions in these lists that come up in this chapter, uh, qualifications, uh, each one is what we're all called to be, to, you know, as well, except for maybe uh, teaching, although we're all to teach by way of example, amen, and, and, and encourage others, but uh, that's not to say that, you know, uh, there is a gifting that goes on as, as, as well among uh, God's gives apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, and so forth. But all the things that we look at the qualifications here, we look at the characteristics and so forth, these should stretch all of us because he's basically talking about what a mature man of God looks like. And uh, we're made, all made in his image, male and female, amen. And even though women have been given the, the, the gifting of bringing life into the world and men have been given the responsibility of leadership in the church, uh, we're all called to be Christ-like and bear these types of characteristics. So in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we look at, uh, we've looked at verse 1. It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he, desire, he desires to do. And last time I talked to you, I had mentioned to you uh, that there's three different Greek words that are used of elders primarily, Okay. Presbyteros, which is translated often elder. Could literally, Paul uses it in 1 Timothy 5 of literally it was an older man, but it's used of somebody uh, who uh, is mature in the Lord in the biblical context when it's being used of a, a leader. But uh, the, uh, we also saw the other Greek word of poimen for pastor, shepherd. And we also uh, saw the word that's translated elder here, or translates to say overseer in verse 1 and verse 2. Uh, episcopace, okay? And episcopace is, a, uh, you know, an overseer, one who oversees. And I mentioned to you that some churches make a distinction between the words and they'll have pastor and then elders or they'll have a bishop and elders or they'll have, they'll add different, you know, and they'll have different views on, on this. But our personal, our, our, our fellowship's view, and this has been from the beginning, is that uh, the words are used interchangeably in the book of Acts when Paul's addressing the elders, all three of those words. Two of those words are used in 1 Timothy 3 right here. Uh, those three words are also used in 1 Peter chapter 5 when he's addressing the elders there. He uses all three of those words interchangeably. doesn't mean they don't have different nuances and meanings. Of course they do, but they're all referring to the same persons. There's also debate as to whether there's only one pastor slash elder in a church or there could be more. Uh, we believe that there's not a distinction in the sense of pastors, elders, and uh, uh, overseers. They're all the same. But we also believe that the scriptures indicate that there are more than one. Not always, we're not saying always, but you see in scripture that there's more than one at certain churches. So we wouldn't come down on a church if they only have one pastor, 
uh, we'd encourage that if they were associated with us, we'd encourage them to appoint others, elders later as well uh, for the health of the fellowship. And man, I'm, I'm so grateful that we have a plurality of elders that serve here. And we also saw last week that there's elders that'll do certain uh, different things. You know, there's elders, it talks about elders who teach and so forth. But elders also administrate, talks about elders managing their house as well, right? They have to manage their house as well. So they have administrative type duties, along with deacons. Deacons had administrative type duties, taking care of the daily affairs of the church and so forth. Uh, and I'm, we praise God for our elders and our deacons in this fellowship. I mean, it, abs it absolutely takes a team, amen? amen? I just had a good fight meeting earlier today, and I only had five or six people there, six or seven people there. And at the end of our meeting, I was just so thankful. I let everybody know I so appreciate all you guys and what you do because the Lord's done so much and there's so much that would never have gotten done had we not been working together, had I not had such a awesome uh, crew uh, to work with. And so I praise God uh, that God does these things, that he works in this way, that he brings us together in Christ. But here he gives the qualifications uh, for an elder and for a deacon as well. And we've been looking at the first verses. And it's a trustworthy statement that if any man aspires to the office of overseer, that's episcopes, uh, and I think I mentioned uh, another word, presbyteros, there in the verse one, but uh, la yes, uh, last time we were talking about this. But man, time goes fast. It seems like we we're just talking about this a day or two ago. <laughs> man, I'm just getting old, man. But it's interesting. Uh, but the words episcopes here in verse one, it's correctly translated overseer a watchman, one who oversees and, and takes care of and so to speak. Uh, and it says, uh, he, 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 the fine work he desires to do. Amen? And a lot of people might be fearful, but he's saying, hey, this is a good thing. God needs, wants, he doesn't need anything. God wants leaders in his churches. Amen? And, for, and there's a lack of leadership today. I think, what was it, the United Methodists? Or the Methodists, one of the big Methodist denominations just split over gay marriage and everything. And it's like, Scripture is really clear on that. You know, are we going to follow what God says or are we going to make it our church? Because as soon as you start making your own rules, it's not the church of Jesus anymore. It's the church of you. And that church ain't going, that church ain't heaven bound, man. And then in verse three, 2, we read this. It gets into the qualifications. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation and cured by the devil. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Then in verse eight, he gets into deacons and the qualifications are overlapping. They're very much the same. So as we get through the list of uh, requirements for an eldership, when we hit deacons, we will go a lot faster because we'll have already covered the qualifications. There'll just be some reminders along the way. And we'll talk about the one major distinction there as well. Now, my prayer before the Lord has been, you know, his will be done. And that is our prayer as we seek the Lord and when we seek to uh, encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. 
And when I looked at this, I thought I could take it one verse at a time. I could take it. And I thought, Lord, I'm just going to take it. I'm just going to study it. I'm just going to seek you uh, through it. And I'm going to just go at the pace because I don't want to skip over things that I think are important to speed it up. And I don't want to uh, go to where, you know, we could actually get a little bit more meat off the bone as, as well. So we're, this is basically 1 Timothy 3, 2a, because you'll see why, because we're going to look at a, f- a couple of things at least. But an overseer then must be above reproach, must be above reproach. What does it mean to be above reproach? And by the way, did you know all of us as Christians are called to be above reproach? This applies to all of us. In fact, go to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and look what Paul writes to Timothy, who's called to be an example to all the rest of the flock. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 14. And he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 14, that you keep the commandment without stain or re- what? Or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he talks about the widows also being above reproach. So this is something where as Christians are called to be above reproach. And in 1 Timothy, if you look at the context and you just back up, what does it mean to be above reproach in the context of what Paul is speaking there? Just go ahead and back up uh, to... Uh, let's speak back up to verse 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Okay? The Lord wants us to be content in our, in, in our godly pursuit of him and who we are in Christ. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. There's no U-Hauls that, are, that hurt. You ever see a hearse pulling a U-Haul? No. Okay, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Some seem to think if we can keep up the Joneses, then we'll be happy. Then we'll be content. That's a big lie, man. Verse 9, but those who want to get rich, it doesn't even say those who are rich here. It says those who want to get rich, they live for money. That's their main goal in life. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made a, the good profession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of, Jesus, and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to fight the good fight. We need to lay hold on eternal life. That needs to be our main focus, amen? And not living for this world. How many people have forfeited ministry because of love of money? Even leaders. Who's, who's a leader that comes to your mind that forfeited his ministry because of love for money in the New Testament? Judas. Would you agree with that? For 30 pieces of silver. He was called to be one of the 12 apostles. His name could be written on New Jerusalem with, with 11 others. But he fell from his apostleship, it says. And it says his name was blotted out of the book of life, Psalm 69. Part of that psalm is quoted, but that psalm talks about 
name, names being blotted out, and it refers to Judas specifically as one of those names. And it's crazy because when you look at Judas's life, you know, he did things didn't go out go how he wanted them to. He saw Jesus healing, right? He saw these wonderful things happening. They were looking for the Messiah, and wow, we've found him. We're seeing all his miracles. Judas even did miracles. They came back together. They didn't say all of us did miracles, but Judas. No, they came back rejoicing, you know. Uh, and it's just amazing when you think about it, because when Jesus, they could see that Jesus' days were numbered in his mind, and that he would be arrested. He said, "Why don't I make some money off of this?" You know. And did it plunge him into ruin and destruction? Did it cause him to wander from the faith? Absolutely it did. And what happens is when things don't go well in your life sometimes, then you're more prone to deception. When you're going through a trial, you're more prone to try other means to gratify yourself. And we live in a world where people just, they, they're prone to fall into the desire for instant gratification all the time. And that's what little kids do, right? They always, even if they might get spanked, they'll still want that instant gratification and you hope they learn, you know? But so, there's a lot of adults who haven't learned and they're living for instant gratification. And by doing so, and it may not be money, it may be alcohol, you know, getting drunk. It may be drugs. It may be sexual sin. Uh, don't find the cheap ways out. The disciples that endured and persevered in the faith, they're blessed in the end, Amen. Not Judas. And when it, we're talking about being a brother reproacher, you have to ask, uh, is there sin are you, in your life where you're not beyond reproach because there's an ongoing sin in your life that's keeping you from ministry, that's keeping you from doing greater things for the Lord? That's true of millions, by the way, of professing Christians around the world, that they could be doing so much more for the Lord, but they allow sin to fester and then dominate their lives. And then before you know it, they have life-dominating sins. That's not God's heart for you. He wants you to be involved in ministry. He wants us to minister one to another. I mean, right here, he's given a list for elders, but beyond reproach, I'm letting you know that's, that applies to all of us, amen? We all have to be a witness. People were, the Bible says we're living epistles read of men. People are looking at your life. And you have to ask and say, hey, Am I allowing my love for, do you love, are you building up more treasures in heaven or are you focused more on building up treasures on earth? Well, as Christians, what did Jesus teach us? In Matthew chapter six, verse uh, 21, or right around there, 19 through 21, don't lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust can corrupt and thieves can't break in and steal, amen? If we're Christians, we ought to be taking Jesus' word seriously, amen? Now, praise God. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, God gives us all things to enjoy. He's a good God, amen? But he wants to be content with food and covering. Everybody here looks like they have some covering. Everybody here looks like they have enough food, you know? Nobody looks like they've you know, been starving to death. So we all need to give thanks to the Lord, amen? But we need to make sure that we seek to live lives beyond reproach. What it means to leave, the Greek literally means live a life beyond being accused or in the position to where accusations stick. It's not talking about absolute perfection. Otherwise, Paul, everybody except Jesus would be excluded for ministry, right? But he is talking about a lifestyle. Well, what does it mean to be above reproach? Well, the very things he mentions after this on the list characterize what Paul's looking for. So I'm glad we have a list there 
where we can say, hey, is my life beyond reproach? You know? And to be beyond reproach, that means, you know, that means you, you, not just how people see you publicly, although that's important because he says, as we read as, through that list there in uh, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, we, we also read that, you know, uh, he must have a good reputation, verse 7, with those outside the church. Amen? But, you know, it, it, what's happening in your house matters a lot. Amen? To be above reproach. It doesn't say just be above reproach to those outside, you know? I, you should be able to, somebody should be able to ask your spouse and your children, if you're a man, if you're, you're your spouse, if you're, or if, you're, if you're a good husband, if you love her, if you spend time with her, if you care for her, or ask your wife, or you ask your, your husband, if you're a woman, if you're a godly woman who seeks to be a blessing. Amen? And they should be able to ask your children, are you a God-fearing person that, that walks in love? Because that's all related to managing the household of God. And that, that we read about later. So it's very interesting here. Uh, now, there can be accusations that come your way in ministry. Did Jesus have any accusations against him? Yeah. Did Paul have accusations against him? Yeah. yeah. All those who live godly in Christ Jesus, Paul says, will suffer persecution. Amen? Amen. But there shouldn't be anything that sticks. Or it shouldn't be, you know what? So-and-so, I don't know if that person should be an elder because that guy's a drunkard, man. Uh, there shouldn't be people saying, yeah, I think you're right, man. I've seen him drunk a few times too. And all of a sudden, a lot of people think you're a drunkard. Shouldn't be an elder. You're not above reproach. Or the guy's a womanizer, you know. He walks around with two different women on his arms, you know. And, and they're not, it's not his wife and daughter. And, you know, there was a prominent pastor. He lived in Palm Springs. And he was on the radio here on KKLA for some time. And then there were videos, video of him. Well, it was video or pictures. I think it was video with different women not clad nicely in a jacuzzi, you know, boom, you know. Remember R.C. Sproul Jr., not R.C. Sproul Sr., who passed away a couple years ago or so, but his son was in his footsteps, books, prominent ministry, and then he was talking about, I, I saw one time he was talking about how when, you know, Christmas comes around, he gets gifts like, you know, hard liquor, because they know he likes hard liquor. I'm like, What? You know? And then he always kind of looked like the red face. And I thought, I didn't want to judge him, but I'm like, that ain't right. You know? And I thought, is that above reproach? You know? And then he was asked to step down from the pastor. And I think he got a DUI. And he had somebody in the, in, the, in the car with him that was from the church. You know? And that's not being above reproach. But that's not just for professing leaders. That's for all of us. Because we're all red of men. Amen? Now... Daniel was accused, remember, the astrologers and the magi and all those guys trying to, you know, get him. And we read in Daniel chapter 6, 4, that they began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption as much as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Obviously, you can live that way, amen? As a born-again believer, one who's regenerated, amen? Who's on this side of the cross. Daniel was on the other side of the cross, amen? We have less of an excuse to live an ungodly life than Daniel did. And we have more resources in Christ, amen? 
because the Holy Spirit did not indwell them in the same way he indwells us now. Amen? And if Daniel could live a godly life, how much more ought we to be living godly lives? And it says that there was no negligence or corruption that was to be found in him. It's important that we examine our hearts and we discern, Lord, is there corruption in my heart that I'm allowing to dominate my life? You know, is, is, is there, you know, what's your goal? Your goal ought to be to be Christ-like, amen? amen yeah. And not to be overpowered and live in life-dominating sins, amen? And our character should be without the love of money. That's what it says in Hebrews 13, that our character is supposed to be without the love of money, amen? And that our character, uh, you know, it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says, this is God's will toward you, your sanctification, amen? And that you are not corrupted, he says, by sexual sin. And these are things that destroy professing Christian leaders. Now, it's interesting because uh, I love Daniel, and I just love that. It's just awesome. Yeah, he got accused, but he was, Jesus got radically accused. What did Pilate say? I find what? No fault in him, amen? And guess what? You can, you can put your money on it, so to speak. Satan is trying to find dirt on you. And what you need to do, whatever dirt there is, you need to say, you need to confess it with the Lord and ask for forgiveness and cleansing, amen? And empowerment not to practice sin and not to live in it. Amen? So it's interesting. Now, uh, and we examine your life, can you find the characteristics of the love of God? Can you, can you agree and say, yes, Joe, I definitely love the Lord way more than I love money. Amen? I definitely love the Lord first. And that's, that's, that's very, very important. Number two, let's move to the next qualification. Verse two, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. Now, Titus, which is also a pastoral epistle. There's three pastoral epistles. Anyone, anyone know what they are? First and second, Timothy and Titus. Two pastors, three epistles, and it's interesting because we read in Titus chapter 1, similar qualifications for the elders. For this reason, verse 5, he says, I left you in Crete that you, now this is right in Titus, not to Timothy, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife. Same order, same first two things. Isn't that interesting? Now, Notice that Titus and Timothy, both the lists begin with being above reproach. Amen? That's something as a Christian you ought to seek to be. Amen? And then the next thing on their list is a husband of one wife. By the way, 1 Timothy 3, verse 12. I'm sorry, yeah, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Deacons must be what? Now he gives a list for the deacons. First, deacons must be what? Husbands of only one wife a good manager of their children and their own households. We've seen that three times now. Twice within the space of just a few verses. In Timothy for deacons and elders and also for Titus. So this is very, very important to the Apostle Paul. Now what does he mean by that? It's a very controversial verse. Churches look at it very differently. Uh, just like we looked at the end of chapter 2 that Women will be saved through childbearing. Amen. Remember that? There's different views on that. But when we looked at that, we looked at what was the most biblical view. 
in my personal estimation, it was very beautiful, very liberating for women actually, and very powerful. Well, I believe that uh, there's four basic views on this verse as to different views as to what it means. And we need to, I wanna look at each of those views. This is something that comes up. People, I get Bible questions from time to time from my brothers and sisters, and this comes up once in a while. What does it mean? What does it mean by, you know, the husband of one wife, you know? And uh, my sister, uh, Kathy, had asked me this not too long ago, uh, and others have asked me this before. It's a very popular Bible question. Now, it's interesting because uh, one view is an elder must be married. That's one view. The husband of one wife, it means the elder has to be married. You can't be an elder unless you're married. God doesn't want any single people, single men, to be elders. Okay? That's one view. Uh, now, it's interesting. First off, I want to emphasize that the emphasis isn't on the wife, having a wife. The emphasis in the word order, in the Greek, is on the word one. Okay? Which, I'm not saying that overthrows the argument, because I believe there's other things that actually make that, per, per, that particular view un, you know, tenuous, not, 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 not a really uh, biblically merited view. But the word order is not husband of one wife. Literally in the Greek, it would be one wife, husband. Okay? One is the emphasis. One wife, husband. Okay? It doesn't say he has to have one wife, but the idea is one wife. Okay? Now... The NAB translation translates it faithful to his one wife. Then IV translates, translates the husband of but one wife. Okay? Now it's interesting. Let's say, for instance, that it really meant he has to be married to be an elder. Okay? Now that wouldn't exclude any of the elders in this fellowship because they're all married. But I personally don't believe he's saying the elder has to be married. If that was the case, uh, Jesus couldn't be a pastor of a church or an elder. Is that right? Yeah. But Jesus is the chief shepherd, amen? amen? He's the ultimate pastor, amen? amen? That would also mean Paul was disqualifying himself. Paul's like, man, I can't be an elder. I'm an apostle, but I can't be an elder anywhere. No, that doesn't, you know, uh, that doesn't make a lot of sense either. Also, it would fly in the face of the apostle Paul's teachings that uh, that actually singleness is to be preferred over married life in ministry. If you don't have the gift of singleness, of course, he says you could be married. But if you have the gift of singleness, he's like, follow my steps. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in fact, if you could go there, that'd be great. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32. Look what he says here. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32, But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. Verse 33, But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. He's not talking about please, uh, uh, you know, please the world in an evil way, but he's just saying he has to take care of his wife. And his interests are what? Divided. The woman who is unmarried, he goes on to say in verse 34, and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord. 
that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Verse 35, this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Paul so much wants to see the gospel shared, amen? He so much wants to see the, the people in the fellowship devoted to Christ, devoted to the church, getting the word out, loving the Lord, loving the church, and taking care of one another, amen? And he's just being straight up, saying, hey, you know what? When you get married, because he's a single man and he's like really free, Peter wasn't single, amen? amen. Peter was married, amen? Amen. Maybe he saw Peter arguing with his wife or something. I don't know, you know. But, uh, uh, but it's interesting because, and Peter led you know, the first nine, ten chapters of the book of Acts. You see Peter, but the next, you know, several chapters, far more than nine or ten, you see Paul's ministry. It's kind of interesting, you know. Uh, and praise God, there's, praise God, God uses married men wonderfully. But praise God, I mean, I don't know. Jesus was single, Amen. Apostle Paul was single. Paul wrote half the books of the New Testament almost. There's a lot to be said about that. That's why I'm always blown away if people shun, when people are single in the Lord, you should go up to them and tease them and say, when are you getting married? When are you getting married? As though they're expected to get married. That might be contrary to God's will for them. And you're putting that trip on them and they might be thinking they should get married because of the way you're making them feel. God may call them to a life of singleness. When Paul says that's even better, he said, if you have the gift of singleness, that is. What if I don't have the gift of singleness? Pray, maybe God will give it to you. If, you, if, you, if you're like, maybe you do have it. I know when I was, an, I was a Christian, and I always envisioned myself when I was a kid, even before I knew Jesus, having a, a wife and five kids or so, and I end up with three, but I end up with a lot more than that in the faith, you know? But it's interesting, uh, and then when I became a Christian, man, I was just, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And I remember asking a youth pastor when I was probably, I don't know, 19 or so, uh, I talked about the gift of singleness. Okay, I had the gift of singleness. And how do you know for sure? Because I just did not want to disappoint the Lord if he gave me that gift. No, I didn't think I had it, you know. I wanted to be married someday still, but I wanted to please the Lord. And there are people that have perhaps the gift of singleness that end up getting married, now they need to be faithful husbands or faithful wives in the Lord, amen. Or there's people that, you know, don't have the gift of singleness and they're like straining to be single to serve the Lord. Maybe they don't have that gift, you know. That's ultimately between people and the Lord. But the point here is, is that Paul is saying, he says, if I went into more text here about, hey, I would that everybody was like me. But he says, I know that not everybody has that gift. Not everybody has the gift of singleness. Praise God, because it's also good that there's kids in the church. Amen? You know? So, you know, God knows what he's doing. But it's very interesting when you think about that in your own life. Uh, God wants us all to serve him. Now, if you're married, you know, uh, I'm, when I go home at night, I have to think of my wife as well. I'm not a good husband if I don't. Throughout the day, I have to consider my wife, pray for her, and so forth. And praise God, it's a joy doing it because I don't have the gift of singleness. But Paul also says, I'm trying to spare you trouble in the flesh. When you're single, you don't have as many troubles because Paul says you will have trouble in the flesh when you get married. Then again, Paul has a gift of singleness, right? So he looks at it through those lenses as well. Now it's interesting. My point here though is, 
Why would Paul be emphasizing that singleness is greater than being married as far as ministry goes, but single people you can't serve in the church as leaders? That makes no sense, amen? amen. Makes no sense. So I'm just saying the view that says, oh, he must be saying here, husband and wife means you have to be married. No, Paul wasn't married, and Paul was actually saying singleness is, is uh, this is like taking it a little bit later. It says he must manage his children well, amen? The word children is in the plural. Does that mean you have to be an elder and you have to have not just one kid, but more than one kid because it says he must manage his children well? See what I'm saying? If you're going to play that game and say, well, it means you have to be married. Well, then it also must mean you have to have more than one child. Just doesn't make sense. What he's saying, though, is if you're married, well, I'm giving the view away that I believe it does say that there should be just one wife, right? And if you have children, you should be managing them well. Uh, now, so that's one view. And I personally think that the scriptures mitigate against that view. The second view is that elder can never have been widowed or divorced before. I mean, he doesn't have a previous wife. It's a popular view. A lot of people hold that view. That if someone's an elder and they have been married before, that they're disqualified from eldership. Uh, I have some problems with that view as well. I'll give you the reasons. Jesus allowed for divorce in the case of, for instance, now he's talking to Jews who are under the old covenant in Matthew 19, but he allowed for divorce in the case of adultery. Amen? If a man divorces his wife without a cause and he marries another woman, then he commits adultery. That's if he doesn't have cause. What's the cause? You know, he let them know, except in the case of porneo in the Greek, sexual sin, amen? Now, it's also interesting that the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 allows for divorce in the New Covenant, when we're in the New Covenant times, and he makes some very interesting statements. But when you go to 1 Corinthians 7 and you understand the context, it's especially strong. In the context of 1 Corinthians 7, you had a lot of new converts, a lot of new Christians, and there was, a, there was a present crisis going on in, in the world and against the church and so forth where Paul's concerned because of the shortness of, because of the crisis that's going on and in view of Christ's return and so forth that they navigate things correctly. And so understand with that background that Paul is stating to them that they ought to stay in the state that they're in if they can. In other words, if you're not married, don't get married because of the present crisis. If you're married, stay married and so forth. But then he brings some qualifications and exceptions to his major points. Look at 1 Corinthians 7, 12. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother, because the Lord spoke on this issue of adultery in marriage already, right? So Paul's saying, I'm not addressing that specifically at the point, but he's addressing something else. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. Okay, so if you're married to a, a gal and she's not a Christian, she may act like a non-Christian. That's how you expect non-Christians to act. You're not supposed to divorce her, amen? Verse 13, and a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away, amen? Like in 1 Peter chapter 3. Remember, says, wives, if you have a husband that's disobedient to the word, seek to win him without a word. Amen. He becomes your mission field. Amen. So you don't look and say, well, I just don't feel we're compatible. 
Oh, we're just not, we're just not joining. We're just, we're joined together in flesh, but we're not twins. We're not soul, soulmates, really. You know, all this psychobabble, golly goop that's unbiblical, unscriptural, and just ruins marriages. That's from the pit of hell. You know how many countless, perhaps millions of gals came to Christ because their husbands continued in the faith and loved them even though they weren't uh, following Christ at first? You know how many men came to Christ because their wives uh, continued to follow Christ even though they were belligerent, even though they were drunkards, and the wives, they weren't unfaithful, and they weren't obedient to the word, but they obeyed 1 Peter 3. Or as Paul says here, how do you know a wife that you won't win your husband? How do you know a husband that you won't win your wife? Same with what Peter is saying. There's not a whole lot in the scripture. There's really not a whole lot on marriage, believe it or not. Well, how come there's not more in marriage? Because the whole Bible is about marriage. I always point at Genesis, Revelation. It's, it's about this megamysterion. That's why I always point to the big picture. But we're talking about the nitty-gritty here. He's saying that if you're married to a non-believer, you should be an evangelist. You should be a missionary, amen? That's a soul for whom Christ died. And you made a covenant before the Lord to love that person and be with him until death do you part. And how much more should you make them the center of your mission field? Yeah, but I've been with a person for years. They still haven't come to Christ. You know how many missionaries have stayed on mission fields and not seen anybody come to Christ, but just stay and plant seeds all their lives? And then they see fruit eventually? Amen? We want to be a faithful people, amen? We want to be loyal. It doesn't mean it's not hard. I know it can be really, really hard for people. But I'm telling you right now, you're blessed when you suffer for Christ's sake, amen? And it says in 1 Peter chapter 4, the spirit of Christ rests upon you. The spirit of grace rests upon you. So if you're a sister or a brother and you're married to a non-believer, rely on the Lord and pray for his strength and cry out to him and say, Lord, be with me and get me through this, but help me be faithful to your word. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So you're with a non-believer, and eventually that non-believer wants to leave you. You can't say, you can't leave me! You can say that. I mean, I'm not saying not to say that. That might even work. Okay, but I'm just saying you don't have to keep your feet in the ground and just remain, become bitter and everything else. It says, let him leave. It comes a point where you just let him leave. Okay, and because he goes on to say, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. You're not in bondage to that marriage. If a non-believer leaves you, you're not bound to that marriage at that point. You're called to peace with God. That was their choice to break the marriage contract or covenant. Verse 16 for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? This is the scripture, you guys. It's the word of God. But he does recognize that sometimes people will have a non-believer leave. Well, look at chapter 7, a few verses later, verses 26 through 28. Very important. Paul says, I think then that this is good in view of the present distress. There's a present crisis going on. That it is good for a man to remain as he is. There was some kind, we don't know exactly what it was. You know, we know that Paul lived during the times of Nero when he, they were hunting Christians. This is prior to that particular persecution. But there were different provinces and different cities where different pers persecutions took on a different, uh, looked at, you know, 
people went through different things. Verse 27, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Brothers, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Okay, are you released from a wife? Maybe she died or she left you, you're, you're divorced, she committed adultery or whatever. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. So if you've, your wife's died or you've been divorced, because he's saying because of the present crisis, remain as you are at that time. But look what else he says. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Verse 28. But if you marry, like you're, but Paul, I want to marry, you know. I have a biblical divorce. It was biblical. She cheated on me. Or we're not married or she left me. Or my wife's dead. She died. I'm a widower. He says in verse 28. But if you marry, you have what? You have not sinned. You have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. Some believe that Paul actually had been married because as a member of the Sanhedrin, many believe he had to have been married. And some believe that his wife died. Some believe that his wife left him when he became a, a Christian. And we don't know what Paul's exact state was, but it's quite interesting. Now, the Common English Bible translates it this way, this, these verses. If you are married, don't get a divorce. If you are divorced, don't try to find a spouse. But if you do marry, you haven't sinned. And if someone who hasn't been married gets married, they haven't sinned. But married people will have a hard time, and I'm trying to spare you that. Craig S. Keener, uh, in his the InterVarsity Press Bible Background Commentary, which is really good for Bible background stuff, he writes this on these verses. Released from a wife, the NASB, not simply unmarried, he says, but released from wife, can mean divorced or widowed. And in the immediate passage must at least include the former, meaning divorced, uh, its meaning in the preceding line. Paul discourages both remarriages and first marriages of virgins even. But for reasons given in the context, he still, he says, permits both. So he discourages it, but he says you don't sin if you do it because of the present distress that was going on. What's the point, you guys? The point is, is that Paul allowed for remarriage. So if there was, and if someone, his wife had died, oh, you can't be an elder. Your wife died. That's not what Paul's saying there because he allows for remarriage. Also, look at 1 Timothy, the very book we're looking at, just a couple chapters later, and it throws some light on this, I believe. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 14. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 14. We read, therefore... Paul says, I want younger widows. These are the ones that under, are under 60, right? They're too young to be on the church welfare list after their husbands have died because they're going to have a lot of energy. They're still young and so forth. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married. Lisa, you're a younger woman, according to this verse, because you're younger than 60. Praise the Lord. Hey, I guess I'm young too until September of next year. Okay. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married. To what? Get married. They've already been married before. But he wants them in their situation to get married. Amen? I want them to get married and bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. And that goes back to that other message, saved through childbearing, 
And you know what I'm talking about if you were there. Very interesting uh, passage there. But guess what? I think it's interesting that Paul, saying the younger widows, get married. But look at what he says in chapter 5, verse 9. Chapter 5, verse 9. A widow is to be put on the list. Now, this is the uh, older widows now. They're to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been what? Having been the wife of one man. Isn't that interesting? It's the same exact wording as the husband of one wife, just the reverse gender. Isn't that interesting? She has to be the husband or the, have been the wife of one man. Now think this through a little bit. This younger widow, let's say one of these is a younger widow, right? And she's told, you know what? Get married, you're a younger widow. Now it's interesting. Well, what about the gift of singleness? Well, that's if you don't have the gift of singleness, and he's probably presuming she didn't because she was married before, right? Or what have you. We don't know all the thinking going on here. But hey, go ahead and get married, Paul says, to the younger widows, right? Younger widow gets married. After she's been, had a husband, now she's got a second husband, right? Then her second husband dies and she's over 60. Can she not teach the younger women because she's been married twice? No. She can, of course. Is she also penalized because she followed Paul's other teaching and got married again? But now she's had two husbands in the past? Is that what he's saying, the husband of one wife or the wife of one husband there? That you can't have had one in the past that died or have had a divorce in the past? No. You can't be saying that because there'd be a weird web of contradiction here, you know? It's like, wait a minute, Paul. I can't serve. You're the one that told me to remarry after my husband died. He was dead for years. You said bear children. But now you're saying because I've been married two different times, I'm disqualified to even talk to the older women, younger women. Now, Paul doesn't say that about women, but he says that about what? Elders. They have to be the husband of what? One wife. So I don't believe what he's talking about there is you could not have had a previous wife. You could not have been a widower or divorced. There's other reasons, but I think those reasons uh, are, are strong. The third view the third view is, there's four views, four main views. Paul is forbidding polygamy. Paul is forbidding polygamy here. Now, it's interesting, because I have several commentators, carries on Timothy, pastoral epistles, and I've read several commentators online as well, and so forth, the people's chiming in on this view. And you know what you hear over and over again in a lot of commentators, carries? He couldn't have been talking about polygamy because polygamy wasn't going around in the first century. It wasn't part of the Greco-Roman world. If it was, it was incredibly rare. So he must not have polygamy in view. Well, I beg to differ because you do a little more research, you start to see he very well could have been talking about polygamy. Or they might say, some will say, and I've read this in one commentary, well, obviously Paul would, Paul would have to say, you know, he can't really be talking about polygamy here because that would be obvious. Really? Paul also forbids drunkenness. That should be obvious too, you'd think, right? You don't want an elder's drunk and it's like, why did Paul even write that? It's so obvious he shouldn't be an elder. But Paul writes it anyway because it's not so obvious for certain people, is it? It's a lot of pastors that drink and many professing Christians, they get drunk. And drunk was not inherit God's kingdom. Uh, so, but polygamy was still a problem in the first century especially still among 
some of the Jews in the first century. In fact, we know, and, and by the way, we should deal with the polygamy question a little bit anyway, because why? That's a question that comes up a lot. Well, in the Bible, you see Abraham has more than one wife. You know, it's Hagar and David has wives. And it's like, you know, Jacob, you know, Rachel and, you know, Isaac and you got, you know, uh, Rebecca, but then you've got Rachel and Leah with Jacob and you got, you know, Solomon and so forth. And it's like, so why did God allow it then, but now he doesn't allow it now? And, and then, back then, God seems to have thought it was a great idea. And wait, 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 now you're going too far. So allowing it, then they go to, well, God was for it all of a sudden. No. When I read Genesis, God takes how many people and makes them one flesh? Two. He doesn't take a bunch of ribs out of Adam's side, and here's like five wives, Adam. Eve, you know, Joanne, Betty, you know, no, it's Eve, guys, mother of all, right? And Jesus said, from the beginning, it wasn't this way. He talked about the Pharisees and their ideas about easy divorce. And he said, it wasn't this way. In the beginning, it was God, you know, created them male and female. And the two, he says, the two became one flesh. Amen? Now, it's important to keep in mind. And it's also interesting to me that God, war God warns them not to multiply wives. Now, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all came before the law of Moses was given. Amen? Amen? But when he gave the law of Moses, we read in Deuteronomy 17, 17, neither shall he, meaning a king, and a couple kings fell into this, neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Wow. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. Well, that's exactly what Solomon did, huh? And what do we read in 1 Kings 11, 3 and 4? And he had 700 wives, that's Solomon. Princesses and 300 concubines. That's a thousand. That's like, I love my wife so much, but one wife is plenty. Okay? Because you know when it says you have to attend to the things of this world? Can you multiply that by a thousand? I wouldn't do anything. How did Solomon get anything done? You know, you're crazy. Okay, anyway, but listen to 1 Kings 11, 3 and 4. And he had 700 wives and, you know, princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. And Solomon grew old. His wives turned his heart after the other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. Now, when David started to multiply some, a few of them, right, he also caused some problems in his life. You know? And it's interesting. So that was a problem. Now think about it. Well, that's before Jesus, though. You're saying it's a problem also in the first century? Yeah. It was a problem in the church age for the first centuries of the church. In fact, uh, Demosthenes, he was a fourth century in the 300s. He was the Roman emperor. And uh, I'm sorry, he was not the Roman emperor. I'm going to be quoting another Roman emperor, uh, Roman emperor in a minute. But Demosthenes was a political statesman in the middle of the fourth century. And it's kind of interesting because look at what he writes in the 300s. It's still going on at that time. He says, mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our households. Some of them had a lot of women, still a problem. So when these commentators say, well, it really wasn't a problem, it was especially a problem among the Jews, though. You see, Justin Martyr, he was a second century church apologist. 
He's one of my favorites. Him and Irenaeus are my two favorites in the second century to stand for the faith against Gnosticism, against Stoicism, and all the isms out there. They were awesome men of God. Justin Martyr's view was that Paul was speaking specifically here of polygamy. Okay, that doesn't mean because it was his view that's the truth. That's what it was. But that was his view. But this is what's interesting. You've all heard of Josephus. Josephus was the first century historian contemporaneous with the apostle Paul, Peter, first century. And you know what Josephus writes about in his antiquities? In the, he writes, quote, for it is an ancestral custom of ours, meaning the Jews, to have several wives at the same time. It was still a custom among the Jews. We also have rabbinic teaching that dates back to this time period that regulated, that regulated polygamy among the Jews. Okay, and I think it's very, very interesting that uh, the Roman emperor I was going to talk about, not the statesman now, the Roman emperor, uh, Theodosius, in 393, right? In 393, the Roman emperor finally banned polygamy among the Jews. Why do I mean finally banned it? Because guess what? The Roman, under the Roman Empire, in the first few centuries after Christ, for the most part, they, they actually ended up making monogamy a, a law. You can't have many wives. But they allowed an exception. Do you know who they allowed the exception for? The Jews. Because remember, they had Pax Romana, Roman peace. And they wanted peace in their empire. They'd take a group over, but they'd let them practice the religion. And a lot of the Jews believed in polygamy, so they said, we're going to let you guys be polygamists. Until the end of the 4th century. So to say that Paul couldn't have been speaking of polygamy is ridiculous. Because guess what? He's writing the scripture as a Jew, amen? And there's going to be Jewish believers. And those are things that they are going to fight against. And by the way, there's a real, a lot of practical reasons for not making a polygamist an elder. Can you imagine somebody came in here and he had four wives and we want you to meet our new elder? That could cause some problems. What do you think? I mean, talk about a guy being divided. I got four different dinners. I got to make each wife happy today or whatever. You know, I can't, you know. I mean, by the way, I've, a missionary friend of mine some years ago was sharing with Lisa and I about how he and his wife on the mission field in Africa, that it was tough sometimes because they'd see Muslims come to Christ and some of these guys had four wives. How do you navigate that? Remember that, Lisa? He's trying to explain to us it was so hard. I mean, what do you do? Do you say, okay, you need to leave the second, the second, third, and fourth wife and just stick to the, fifth, the first wife. But then all the kids came from the fourth wife. And he's got to take care of the kids. Or It's not easy to navigate, okay? But you, and you're going to make that guy an elder in the church. Not a good idea, okay? So, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, to nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. That's how he starts that off before he starts talking about the, the, the virtues of singleness, by the way. Because he recognizes not everybody has the same gift. That's the third view. And as you can see, I think that view has a lot to commend itself. Here's the fourth view. First two I don't think are very strong. That third view is really strong. The fourth view, he must be faithful to his wife. Because, and, and, and the point of this one is that the word order is not just an emphasis on one, but the Greek words that are used don't need to be translated husband and wife. The Greek words 
uh, could just as easily be translated uh, a man and his woman, okay? One woman, man. That is, he must be faithful. The man must be a one woman man. And it's interesting. Now, some will say, well, yeah, the Greek, you know, I mean, that's not so clear. The Greek, none of these, none of the meanings, none of these interpretations do justice to the Greek so much. Except maybe the polygamy view would be probably uh, the most unhindered by it. And you could say, well, you could say, you know, why didn't Paul just say he could never have been, he never, not a divorced man or not a, you know, this or that. Uh, he leaves us a very interesting terminology that was probably very well understood in those days. But he says, Mias Andra Gunai, or uh, Mias Andra Gunaios, which is literally, he's talking about the Greek, he's using the Greek word andros, which is a Greek word for man. And it could be translated man very easily, just like husband. And gune, okay? And gune can easily be translated woman as well as wife. So it's often translated man and, and woman. So Paul literally could be saying, must be a one woman man. Meaning he's dedicated to one woman and no more. And he's faithful. In fact, listen to NIV. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife. Catch that? That's how they translate it. They have, they're trans, now it's more of a, the NIV is more of a, you know, dynamic translation than word for word, but it's trying to bring out what the translators believe Paul's saying there. Uh, that New Living Translation says, so the elder must be a man whose wife, a life is above reproach. He must be faithful to his wife. So those translators are basically letting you that he's talking about faithfulness uh, to his wife. And certainly, we don't want elders who are unfaithful to their wives. Amen. Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. And today we live in a hookup culture, this world. I mean, the nation that we're in right now, people sleeping with each other left and right, millions of babies put to death since the 60s hippie revolution, the counterculture revolution, STDs, I mean, one in four people just about have a sexually transmitted disease, uh, people are involved in, their lives are become meaningless, empty, no solid relationships from person to person, uh, just uh, trying to gratify themselves and ended up empty. It's really, really tragic. Uh, suicide has been on the rise, especially among young gals. Very, very, very sad. And we have to make sure as believers, all of us, it applies to all of us, that we should all be being faithful if you're married to your spouse. If you're married, that marriage bed's undefiled. But adulterers, God will judge. But he'll also judge the sexually immoral. If you're single, you need to be like the Apostle Paul and crucify your flesh and walk in holiness and in righteousness. Amen. So if your husband, this is so important right now because the world does not understand the meaning of marriage anymore, do they? They don't understand what a woman is. Or what a man is. It's just crazy today. I mean, that you have a Supreme Court justice being asked what a woman is, and she says she's not a biologist. She doesn't know how to define it. Well, she's doing that because she doesn't want to define it. Because she wants people to believe anybody could be a, can claim to be a woman. And poor women. You got all these guys in women's sports now. And it's just grotesque. Winning the, winning the, they can't beat other men. So I go, you know what? I think I can feel good about myself if I beat some women and claim to be a woman. Well, how do you know they don't feel like a woman inside? Well, they might feel that way too. It doesn't make it right. I might feel like a potato, okay? Or I might feel like a cat or whatever. It doesn't mean all of a sudden I can just claim to be a cat, you know? 
By the way, I've told you before, there's what's considered mental illnesses, lycanthropy and so forth, where people think there's certain kinds of animals like Nebuchadnezzar, which was a judgment from God. He was handed over to the demonic, you know. And that's what's going on today. It's kind of interesting. Refer to them as they, them. Legion, who are you? We are many. Hmm. I think it's spiritual in a lot of ways. Not every time. I'm not saying it's always demonic or possession, but I think there's demonic entities involved in this whole deception here. Well, guess what? The Lord gave us marriage to show us Christ's love for the church, amen? And people need Christ, and they need the gospel more than they need anything right now. And when you bring people to Jesus, and you, they understand that he died for their sins, he rose again, that he is the king of kings, he's the Lord of lords, that he alone is the way, the truth, and life, Right? He's the way to the Father. There's no, one, no way to the Father but by through him. That he's the resurrection of life. That he's come to give abundant life. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that he might have life and he might have it more abundantly. We share the good news. We have great news, man. And, that's, and it continues to spread. I mean, we all got saved. There's millions and millions more that are getting saved over and over again. And every few seconds, someone dies. But also, people are getting saved left and right. And guess what? We need to be a picture of the gospel. And the mega mysterion, that's the word Paul uses when he talks about this divine romance, this great mystery, mega mysterion, is Christ's love for the church. And husbands, love your wives as Christ what? Love the church and gave himself for her. As Christian men, we need to be absolutely faithful to our wives, amen? amen. In a culture that wants us to erode our convictions, a culture that wants us to give in to temptation, we are in a spiritual warfare we're commanded in the Bible, men and women, to put on the whole armor of God, amen? That you may stand against the wiles of the devil. That is not a suggestion. That's a command. And that also should sound the alarm for you. Why would you have to put on the whole armor of God? Because Satan's at war with you. He also says, put on the whole armor of God, the whole armor of God that you may stand in the evil day. Amen? We need to have the armor of God on. We need to be praying for our children. We need to be stand up as warriors, as men for our wives, amen, and stand fast and say, I'm not going to be moved. They used to have a law or a rule in hockey. They used to have no rule for helmets. You see guys skating around. They'd smile, and you're like, oh, that dude doesn't have teeth, you know. And it becomes normal. All of a sudden, I guess it's normal. You feel funny if you have teeth, you know, if you're talking a bunch of hockey players. Then finally, they... You, more and more guys were getting, you know, helmets, even though it wasn't a rule yet. There were some holdouts, you know. One famous hockey player realized when his friend got just practically destroyed with a hockey puck, he finally started wearing a helmet. Then they made a law that you have to wear a helmet, you know, a rule in hockey that you've got to wear a helmet now. It's for their own good, so they don't have a puck that's going over 100 miles an hour that hits them in the head, kills them, knocks out a few of their teeth. Well, guess what? Far more serious than wearing a hockey helmet when you're playing hockey, as important as that can be, is making sure you have the armor of God on, amen? And making sure that you're fighting for your family, making sure you're fighting for your wife. But if you knew my wife's not, either are you, you're not perfect. And wives, stand by your husbands, amen? Praise God. God's blessed you with a spouse. He is so good. I want you to consider a few things in this last few minutes that we have. When you're being tempted, if you're tempted to be unfaithful to your spouse, I want you to remember things, a few things. I want you to consider a few things. First, consider your God. Consider your God. In 2 Samuel 12, 13, 
Samuel, or Nathan the prophet, pointed out David's sin. And David repented. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. He said, I've sinned against the Lord to Nathan. In Genesis 39, when Potiphar's wife was seeking to seduce righteous Joseph and destroy his life and said, lay with me and grabbed his cloak. Joseph's response to Potiphar's wife is so powerful. He says, quote, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Consider your God. When you sin sexually, when you walk in immorality, you're breaking the heart of the one who created you, who loves you, and you're, 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 you're throwing darts, shooting darts in the heart of the one who gave his life for you on the cross. Don't do that to him. Look at how wonderful he's been to you. Look at how, what he's done for you. Don't do that against the Lord. Number two, consider your witness. When David sinned, we read, Nathan said, because of this deed, David, he said, you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Okay, consider your witness. Because you're supposed to be shining light of Christ and you drag his name through the mud and you give people occasion to blaspheme Christ and say, oh, that's a Christianity. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, the apostle Peter warns that the last day because of sensuality that the name of Christ will be brought into disrepute. And we're seeing that fulfilled in our days, amen? Number three, number one, consider, consider your God. Number two, consider your witness. Number three, consider your spouse. In Malachi 2.14 we read, because the Lord has been a witness between you and your, the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously or unfaithfully, deceitfully, traitorously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. God is saying it's not just you, him you sin against and you hurt. It's not only the witness you give to others, but you sin against your spouse. You defraud them. Number four, consider your children, if you have children. Malachi chapter two, which God says, I hate divorce. He hates it, man. Has not the uh, one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. You hurt your children too. Why? Why would you hurt God? Why would you hurt your witness? You know, why would you hurt your spouse? Why would you hurt your children? All for a feeling that adds to nothing but leads to death? Or a series of feelings that lead to death? Wise up. Don't do it. Don't get involved in sexual sin. Consider your children. In fact, next and lastly, consider your eternal soul. Proverbs 6.31, whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Catch that? He who does so destroys his own soul. I was praying about this message off and on for a little while, and I prayed how to end it. I thought I was done with that message at a certain point, and I thought, Lord, I want to give some strong warnings to the fellowship to be faithful, and I just cried out to him. I said, I'm going to tell him about being faithful to you, and then as I prayed, consider this, consider that, consider this, and I think, I really believe the Lord put that in my heart because I was praying, what should we consider, Lord, when we're tempted to sin sexually? Those five things are very important, but I want to end by saying this because I've got two minutes left. David sinned radically. There's good news if you've fallen and you want to get right with God. 
and you want to repent and you want to be forgiven because Jesus Christ died on the cross for you and you can be restored. We read in Proverbs chapter 28, I'm sorry, uh, that first Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy, amen? You must con confess them, Lord, I'm wrong, and renounce them, turn from them, amen? And in Psalm 51, verse seven, David says this, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity, creating me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Amen? Rather than having the nations blaspheme, your repentance and you walking with Jesus can point the lost right back to Jesus. Amen? And you can be radically restored. Amen? But let's be faithful to the Lord so we can give him praise and we live for his glory and so we can be useful as vessels fit for his service so we can minister one to another. Amen? Because you're robbing God. If you're living a life of sin right now, you're robbing God from serving him. And stop robbing God. Get right. Be thankful for what he did. Don't spit or trample underfoot the blood of Christ. Amen? Amen? Be cleansed by the blood of Christ and be used for a service now and forevermore. Amen? Amen? Father God, let's all please stand for a moment. Father God.